question we're going to try to answer this morning. I've worked with kids, both kindergarten, middle school, high school kids, and they all have different understandings of what it means to be obedient. Now, what's interesting is with high schoolers, sometimes they can be outwardly obedient and they can hide the fact that they're not inwardly wanting to do what you've asked them to do. Sometimes they do have a bad attitude about it, but even as adults, we know sometimes you can do the right thing, but you cannot have the right attitude about it. But kids are different. They're not as good at hiding when they don't want to do something. If you tell them to go clean their room, they can either respond well and they can be excited and they can go to the room and clean it up, or maybe they won't do what you're saying at all, or maybe they'll do what you're saying but with the wrong attitude and they'll fold their arms and they'll stomp over and they'll throw stuff in the closet and kick stuff under their bed and it's just very obvious that they're not wanting to obey. Well, I was reading about some kids who had the right attitude but maybe they were doing the wrong thing. One boy wanted to help his mom clear the table so when she wasn't in the room he threw away the centerpiece, the tablecloths, and all the flowers that were there. He had the right attitude, he just didn't do the right thing. One child wanted to help her mom do the laundry by washing all of her clothes in the toilet. It's the only sink that she could reach. One girl wanted to help her parents clean the bathroom and make it smell nice, so she sprayed all of her dad's cologne all around the bathroom so that it smelled better. And then finally, one boy wanted to help his mom weed the garden, So he not only pulled up all the weeds, but all the flowers and all the other plants that were there. And so there were no weeds in the garden. What does it mean to be obedient? We have a command as Christians. It's from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. It says to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. This is what Jesus tells the church right before he goes to heaven. He leaves them with one final command. He says, what I want you to focus on is to go into the world and make disciples, to teach them all that I've commanded you. And the disciples do a pretty good job of that. If you read the book of Acts, you see how they do go into the world from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And they make disciples. They teach those disciples the things of Jesus. But the command didn't just stop with them. It continues to us today. The church, the mission of the church, is to go and make disciples. It's interesting. When churches get to this time of year, they start thinking about their mission statement, their vision. What's our purpose as a church? And our church's purpose is to go and make disciples. We have that as part of our mission statement. Now, what was really funny was back a couple years ago when 2020 began, you've got like the 2020 vision people, and that was everybody's focus for 2020. We're going to have 2020 vision in a new way that we see our world. That What they didn't realize was that COVID was going to happen three months later. So all their plans for 2020 vision kind of changed when the pandemic happened. And so this time of year is a time that a lot of us start thinking about what is our purpose as a church? And any church you go to that I, is scriptural, that is trying to obey the Bible, is going to have that as part of their mission statement in some form or way, that we're to make disciples to the glory of God until Jesus returns. Now, we know that that's our command. We know that that's what God wants us to do. But sometimes the way we do that is different. Some people don't always obey the Great Commission like they should. 
Some people flat out ignore the Great Commission. They know that this is what God has told us to do. We should go make disciples, but they don't want to. So they just ignore it. They don't go and make disciples. They don't think it's their gift. Maybe they say they don't have time to go do that. And so they make excuses for why they can't do that. Some people say it's just the pastor's job to go and make disciples, but they don't see that as their job in the church. Some people obey the Great Commission wrongly, kind of like the children who wanted to weed the garden and they picked up all the flowers or they cleared the table by throwing the centerpiece away. They don't really make disciples. Maybe they don't understand the gospel. There's a lot of churches that maybe are trying to evangelize. They're maybe trying to disciple people. They don't know what the gospel is. So what they're teaching people is a bunch of things that don't really matter. Those are people that obey the Great Commission wrongly. They might have good intentions, but they share a false gospel or they promote ministries that aren't really focused on the gospel. Some people obey the Great Commission begrudgingly. Maybe they do it. Maybe they try to evangelize or they at least try to help out, but they don't obey it like they should. But what we want to do is we want to obey the Great Commission with joy. We want to be people who joyfully make disciples. And that's our focus for this morning in this sermon. We want to be Christians that joyfully make disciples of the people around us. And so what does it look like to be joyfully obedient to the Great Commission? We're going to see an example of what not to do in the story of Jonah. And as we were reading the chapter, I couldn't help but notice some of you were laughing and commenting on Jonah's attitude because it is kind of funny when you get to this last chapter. Now we're going to look at this last chapter of Jonah. I'll give a little bit of an overview of the first three chapters, but we're skipping to the end of the story because I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. Jonah was a prophet. He was a prophet who lived around 700 BC, and as a prophet, he was charged with proclaiming God's word. That's what they were supposed to do. They were to go to a town, usually Jerusalem or some kind of Israelite town. God would give them a message. Usually it was, hey, if you guys don't shape up, he's going to rain down fire and brimstone. And he would tell people to repent. Prophets were known for giving people the word of God, but also being a good example of what God has told them to do. It would be unusual that a prophet did not live a godly life. And some of the best examples of faithfulness in the Old Testament are found in the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Habakkuk, Micah, Amos, all these people were faithful people to the Lord. They were known as examples to Israel. The prophets were to be faithful in their lives. But what would happen if a prophet wasn't faithful? What would happen if a prophet heard the word of the Lord and then, then they decided, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. That's what we discover in the book of Jonah. So I want us to look at just a quick crash course in the book of Jonah to catch us up to where we are right now. In Jonah chapter 1, God calls Jonah. He gives him this message. He says, rise, Jonah, go to the city of Nineveh and call out against it for their evil has come up against me. So he says, you need to rise, you need to go, you need to call. And it's really funny if you look at the way the verses are laid out. Jonah does rise, Jonah does go, but he doesn't go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarshish, which is on the other side of the map. And so he decides he's going to do his own thing. He's going to run away from the Lord. At the end of chapter one, God confronts Jonah with a storm. And through a series of events, he's thrown into the water and eaten by a fish. We don't know what kind of fish it was. It's just called a great fish. Now, I want to stop there for a second. Most people, when they talk about Jonah, 
They just focus on the fish. They make all the story of Jonah about the fish. But the fish really isn't that important. We don't know what kind of fish it was. It could have been a whale. It could have been a big fish. We don't really know. And we never hear about the fish again in all of Scripture, really. I mean, Jesus makes a reference to Jonah being eaten by a fish. But none of the rest of the Bible seems to think the fish is important. That's not really the main point of Jonah. So then in chapter 2 of Jonah, Jonah is inside of this fish and he repents to the Lord, or at least he seemingly does. He prays this prayer to God and there's almost this psalm that's in the book of Jonah in chapter 2 asking God to rescue him from his distress. It's this really cool prayer that he has for repentance. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on the dry land. Now, that's a little bit of a vivid description of what happens, but he did spit Jonah up, and he ends up on the dry land, and then Jonah goes to Nineveh. So then in chapter 3, after Jonah is spit out by the fish, God calls Jonah again. He says, let's see if you get it right this time. He says, rise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, call out against them, and that's what Jonah does. He rises, he goes to Nineveh, He calls out against their wickedness. He obeys God. And what's really cool about chapter 3 is that we get a switch in the perspective. The point of view changes from Jonah to the people of Nineveh. And they hear this message from Jonah and they start to repent. They start to um, get rid of their wickedness and they start to repent and seek the Lord. And we even see the reaction of the king of Nineveh. In verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, The word of the Lord reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, and covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. He repents, and he encourages all the people to repent as well, praying that God might spare them from this disaster. And then at the end of chapter 3, the perspective changes again, and we see from God's point of view. And it says, When God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So God sees their repentance. He sees how they changed their ways. And it's really interesting. The verse says he relented. Now, what does that mean? Did God change his mind? Well, we know that God can't change. So it's one of those interesting verses where I don't think we have the right human word to describe what God was going through. How can an unchanging God feel this in emotion and not give them this disaster? We don't really know how to understand this, but yet this is what God did. So we get done with the first three chapters. And if you've not read the story before, if you've not read what Tim just read for us a little bit ago, you would start to wonder what chapter four is going to be about. Is God going to continue to bless the people of Nineveh? Is Jonah going to disciple them and show them the ways of God and teach them God's character? Is Jonah going to go back home to Israel and tell them to shape up and repent? If you don't know the rest of the story, you'd probably be wondering what's going to happen next. And it would really surprise you what you find in verse 1 of chapter 4. And from chapter 4, there's two lessons that I believe that we can learn in obedience. What we first see is a lesson in the character of God. What we really see is Jonah, who is surprised by God's character. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 4, and we'll see Jonah's reaction to these events. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. 
Now that word there in Hebrew, it actually means that Jonah was displeased to be displeased. It's like the most revolted that you can be in the Hebrew language. Jonah is upset. And why is he upset? It says he was displeased exceedingly and he was angry. Now this is not what you would expect Jonah to be like. Imagine, you know, the evangelist we often think of today is Billy Graham. And there's people who like him or don't like him, but he had evangelistic meetings. Imagine if after many people got saved, he walked off the platform and he was just angry and he was upset. And you'd probably wonder, why are you so upset? And look at what God says, or look at what Jonah says to God. It says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord... Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. It's interesting. This is the second prayer that we see Jonah pray. In chapter 2, Jonah prays to God and he repents. He says, I was wrong. I should have done what you told me to do. And from there, you think maybe Jonah's starting to understand God. Maybe he's starting to get it right. He's starting to now obey. He does go to Nineveh. He does tell them to repent. But now in chapter 4, we see that Jonah's still not obedient. He still doesn't understand the character of God. He says, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Not because they were so wicked, but because he knew God's character. It's interesting, as you hear people talk about Jonah, they'll often talk about how wicked the Assyrians were. And they were really wicked people. They would skin people alive. They would decapitate people. They were not people you would want to go share God's message with. And many people think that's why Jonah didn't want to go. He was afraid. But we never see that Jonah is afraid to go. We just know that he doesn't want to go. And why does Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? It's because he doesn't want them to repent. He says, I told you in chapter one, when God told Jonah to go, he's like, this is the whole reason why I didn't want to go in the first place, because you're a gracious God. And they're going to repent and they're going to trick you or convince you that they're doing what's right. And you're not going to condemn them. It says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This may be the only times those attributes of God are used in scripture and someone is complaining about them. Can you imagine that? Someone just praying during a church service and saying, well, I just can't believe the Lord is so gracious and he's so merciful and he's slow to anger. It's really quite the picture that we see here of Jonah. But what Jonah shows us is the character of God. Oftentimes when we read the Old Testament, we get a wrong picture of God. We see judgment come from God. We see all these things happen where God needs to destroy people groups. And we think in the Old Testament that God is some kind of vindictive bully, that he's not the same God as the God in the New Testament. But that's not true. Even here in Jonah, what is Jonah saying? I knew that you were gracious. I knew that you were loving. I knew that you would forgive them. We see in the Old Testament the love of God. That God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jonah's probably wanting God to execute judgment like he did against Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that from Genesis? The two wicked cities that were so wicked that God had to remove them from the face of the earth. Jonah says, where's the fire and brimstone? Why are you not just destroying this city? But what Jonah forgets is what God told Abraham. 
said if there were just 10 people that were found righteous in the city, that God would have spared it. But because there were not 10 people who were righteous, God destroyed it. It's always been the nature of God that he's been gracious and loving and merciful. But Jonah doesn't like that. It doesn't go with what Jonah thinks God should do. So look at what he says in verse 3. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He is so distressed about this that he's to the point where he wants to die. He says, I don't want to live in a world where God allows these people to live. Jonah, outwardly obedient. Yes, he goes to Nineveh. He calls out against their wickedness. He tells them to repent. Inwardly, he's still disobedient. Inwardly, he still maybe understands the character of God, but he has not adopted God's character in his own life. He appreciates God's grace and love and mercy in his life. He doesn't want to see it extended to others as well. Now, if you're God in this situation, and we can all be thankful that I'm not God and that you're not God, but imagine how you would respond to Jonah in this situation. You might say, get over it, or maybe you'll just remove him from the face of the earth here. God only responds with a question. It says, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And God's going to ask Jonah this question again a couple different times. And what, he, what he's asking here is, do you have righteous anger? Are you justified in being angry? Is it right for you to be upset that God is gracious towards these people? And that's where the scene ends. We, get, we pick it back up later with God talking with Jonah. But here we do see the character of God, that God is gracious and loving and merciful. And it is a good reminder to us as well that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And it's an encouragement to us to not be like Jonah in our obedience to God. As we seek to make disciples, as we want to evangelize to other people, we shouldn't be hoping that God removes them from the face of the earth. We should be praying for genuine repentance, genuine change in their life. Do you obey the Great Commission? Do you truly desire to see people saved? Now, I'm not saying that any of us are all the way like Jonah and how his attitude was, but sometimes we don't obey the Great Commission like we should. We can do it outwardly. We can do the things that God has told us to do, and outwardly it looks like we're fine, but inwardly we don't have the right attitude. We see this especially in the New Testament. God's not just concerned that you look like you're doing the right thing. He wants you to have the right attitude while you're doing it. This all models the example of Christ. Christ, when he was here on earth, not only obeyed God, but he had the right attitude while he did as well. You think about when Christ came to earth, he was perfect. He's fully God and fully man. He never sinned, not even once. And yet he hung around with sinners. He didn't just try to find the most righteous people here on earth, but he ate with tax collectors and he ate with prostitutes and all these people that you would not want to be seen associated with here on earth. Jesus was their friend. Jesus shared the gospel with them. And he didn't just complain about them. You don't see Jesus praying to the Father and saying, how long do I have to be here on earth around all these people that I don't like who do all these things that they shouldn't? No, it says when Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
Think about that this morning. When you see lost people, when you see the unsaved, are you prone to just complain about them? Or are you prone to see them with the eyes that Jesus sees them with? That they are in need of salvation. That they're in need of the gospel. This is a lesson in the heart of God. God is gracious and merciful and loving. And we should be as well. We see a second lesson here from Jonah. It's a lesson in the character of man. Jonah not only shows us God's character, he shows us man's character as well. And we're not going to like what we find. Jonah leaves the city in verse 5. It says, Jonah went out of the city to the e- and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there and sat under it in the shade till he should see what becomes of the city. Now, this is very strange. Even if you've read this chapter a lot, it's a little interesting what he does. He must have been in the city when he was talking with God. He leaves the city to go sit on the east side of it, and he makes himself a booth, which would be like a shelter there for him to sleep in and to watch the city in. And he seems to be there for one purpose. He wants to see what's going to happen to the city. Now, we know that God's not going to destroy it. We know that Nineveh repented. So the only reason Jonah could be watching the city to see what happens is he thinks one of two things is going to occur. Either God's going to change his mind and he says, you know what, I really should destroy that city. And he just zaps them. Or he thinks the Ninevites aren't going to keep this up. They're going to eventually mess up and turn and God is going to destroy them because of their wickedness. Either way, he's really just watching to see if they fail. So in verses 6 through 8, God puts Jonah to the test. He uses an object lesson, and he's going to expose Jonah's hypocritical heart. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Now I don't know what kind of plant this was. Some of the books that I was reading on this chapter went into a lot of explanation on what kind of plant this could have been. I just know it was a plant and it had to be tall enough to cover Jonah and give him shade. But God caused it to grow up in like a day so that Jonah would have this shade. And notice it says that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. That's like the most glad that you can be. He was very upset in verse 1. Now he's very happy because God has given him shade. And in that time period and in that region that he was in, it would have been very hot. So he would want shade over his head. In verse 7 it says, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Now that's my favorite description of how the worm could have eaten the plant that I've read. That he attacked the plant so that it withered and that it fell down. God appointed the plant, then he appointed a worm to destroy the plant. And then in verse 8, it says, When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, that he was faint. So the next day, it gets very hot there. And then there's a scorching east wind. This would be called a sirorco, and it was this eastern wind that would take away all the humidity. It'd be very dry and it would bring extreme heat. So Jonah at this point is not just feeling weak. He's probably getting heat stroke or sunstroke. He's getting very weak. And he prays to God and he's, he asks that he might die. And said it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah first has this plant that God provided to him. Now the plant's been taken away. And he's brought again to the point where he wishes for death. 
And at the end of this little object lesson, God speaks to Jonah, and he's now going to expose Jonah's heart. It says, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plants? Remember, this is God asking, do you have righteous anger? Is it good for you to pity the plant or to be upset that I took away the plant? And notice Jonah's response. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. When God asked him, is it all right that you're, do you have righteous anger? Is it okay that you're this upset about a plant? Jonah doubles down on it and he says, yes, it's okay for me to be upset. In fact, I'm so angry, I want to die. I don't want to be here without this shade over my head. And then God is going to expose now in verse 10, Jonah's hypocritical heart. It says, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. He says, look, you're upset about this plant, but you didn't plant it in the ground. You didn't water it and make it grow. You didn't really work for any of it. I'm the one who provided it. I'm the one who put it here and I'm the one who took it away. So Jonah enjoyed God's providence while he had it. But he was upset when God took that away. But he says, really, if you're going to be upset about a plant, then can't I be upset about the people of Nineveh? In verse 11, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? God says, you're upset about this plant. I care about the people of Nineveh, this whole city where there's 120,000 people. And at the end, he says, if you don't care about the people, what about the animals and the cattle and all the people who are there? He shows Jonah, you have more care and concern about a plant than you do about this whole city who does not know God. Outwardly, Jonah obeyed God's command. Inwardly, God exposes Jonah doesn't care about these people at all. He just did what he was supposed to so that he could go home. But he really wanted God to destroy them. And we see the character of God again. God does not want to destroy the city. It's his desire that they would repent, and that they would follow God, and that he could spare them. God also understands that these people are morally simple. I love how this verse describes it. He says these people don't know their right hand from their left hand. When it comes to their morality, they're lost people. We know that, yes, from Scripture, people should have a under, basic understanding of what right and wrong is. But because of sin, they choose to do wrong. They choose to disobey God. But God says these people are so far gone, they're so wicked, they don't know their right hand from their left hand. They don't even know what's right and wrong anymore. And Jonah doesn't have any compassion for them. He doesn't see them in the way that God does. He doesn't care about what happens to them. He doesn't understand that they're totally lost and that they need God's mercy and grace. But what's interesting about the book of Jonah is that we often talk about the wickedness of the Ninevites and how sinful they were. But whose sin do we see most of all in the book of Jonah? We see Jonah's. Jonah is the one who didn't do what God told him to do. God told him to go to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish. Jonah is the one who's getting upset about a plant. Jonah is the one who does not understand the heart of God. And it's interesting. When you compare him to the people of Nineveh, Jonah 
obeyed, but only outwardly. But he was not changed in his heart. The Ninevites were so distressed by what Jonah said that they changed both outwardly and inwardly. They obeyed God. This is a lesson for us in the hypocritical and sinful nature of Jonah, how he truly did not understand the character of God. And let's remember this morning, before we are quick to judge Jonah and to think that he's being ridiculous, that that same sinful heart can be in us as well. We can be hypocritical. We can be tempted to judge others who are unsaved. There's a lot of wickedness that we see in our world today. You can't turn on the news or read a paper or listen to a podcast or watch a video without seeing just the sinful humanity that we live in. And sometimes we're tempted to complain about how sinful the world is and the declining standards of our country. But how often do we complain about how sinful our world is and how often do we share with that world the gospel? Sometimes we complain more than we evangelize and share the gospel with those people. And I again would remind us of the example of Christ, who probably had the most reason to come into the world and complain about how sinful we are, but instead took on flesh and ate with tax collectors and sinners and showed them the love of God. Jonah is a book about obedience, not just obedience outwardly, but obedience inwardly as well. Ask yourself this question this morning. Do you care about the lost people who are in your life? Do you genuinely want to see them repent? Do you want to see them change? Do you want to see them know God? Do you spend more time sharing the gospel with them than you do complaining about them and how they act? This is what we've been commanded by God to do, to go into the world and share the gospel with these people. So as we conclude our sermon this morning, I want to talk about how we can apply the story of Jonah to our own understanding of the Great Commission. First of all, we should be obedient. We should be obedient. We've been given this command by God to go into the world and to make disciples, to witness to others, to teach them the commands of God. And rather than making excuses, we should obey the Great Commission. We shouldn't let time be an excuse and say, well, I don't have time to go witness to others. Well, there's one command that, God, that Christ gave us before he went to heaven, and that is to go and make disciples. So really, that should be our focus. We should eliminate distractions so that we can share the gospel with others. We shouldn't let fear be an excuse to stop us from sharing the gospel with others because we're not ultimately accountable to man. We're accountable to God. God will give us the opportunities. God will give us the avenues with people to share the gospel with them. It's funny. Sometimes I think to myself, God's not put anyone in my life that I can share the gospel with. And then I start thinking about the people that I talked to, maybe even that day. And I think, well, this person doesn't know the Lord. And I could share the gospel with them. This family member doesn't know the Lord. And I just saw them at Christmas and Thanksgiving. And you start to realize that God has put a lot of people in your avenue, in your route of opportunity to share the gospel with. And they're different than people that I can share the gospel with, and you probably have the best opportunity to show them the love of Christ. 
So this morning, we should be obedient to the Great Commission, to what God has commanded us to do, to not only share the gospel with people, but to help them follow Christ, making them a disciple until Christ returns. Secondly, we should be gracious. We should be gracious. Jonah complains that God is such a gracious God. We should show God's grace to others. Sometimes when we deal with unsafe people or people who need to grow in their Christ-likeness, we don't show them grace. But yet think about your life and how much grace it took for God to save you. And you start realizing that you're more like the people you're complaining about than maybe you would care to admit. When we see the wickedness of humanity, when we see people who need the gospel, we shouldn't just turn our backs on them in judgment. We should show them grace. We should show them the grace of God that not only has saved us, but that is transforming us and helping us walk in a new life. Thirdly, we should recognize our world's need for the gospel. We should share the heart of Jesus, who when he saw the crowds was moved with compassion because he realized that they were lost. Rather than being prone to be discouraged by our sinful world, rather than being prone to complain about our sinful world, share the gospel with them. Recognize their lostness. We realize that their actions are sinful, their thoughts are impure, their desires are selfish, and that's because they don't know Christ. And without Christ, they are helpless. So don't let these actions motivate you to just be angry. Let it motivate you to pity them and to share the gospel with them because of their hopelessness without Christ. And finally, we should rejoice in the work of the Lord. Rather than being like Jonah and complaining and pouting and despairing at God's work, we should rejoice. Every time we see a person saved, every time we see a person come to know the Lord, we should rejoice. Jesus says that when one sinner is saved, all of heaven rejoices. And in the same way, we as God's church should rejoice when we see someone come to know the Lord. So my prayer for us in entering 2024 is that we would share the gospel with others. That we'd find people in our lives, in our neighborhood, in our families who need the gospel. That we would demonstrate to them the grace and love of God. May we learn from the example of Jonah and not be prone to complain about God or to complain about the people we're witnessing to, but that we would practice joyful obedience to the Great Commission until the Lord comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Jonah. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to not be like him, but that we would instead be Christians who are joyfully obedient to what you've called us to do. God, help us to find opportunities in our lives with people who need to hear your word. Help us to know your word well enough to be able to share the gospel with them and to show them the love of Christ. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.